Okay, I, like I said, this morning was slightly unusual. We don't usually go through that much Old Testament text, but the more I was looking through Luke 22, it just there's no way we could make as a sub-point New Covenant. It needed its own message. So on that point, any questions about the stuff we covered this morning? We covered a lot of ground. Oh, Alex Palmquist. Okay, I have three. Yes, three. Yes. Okay. So the first one, um, Jeremiah thirty-one three. Yes. This is more of a statement and a question. Okay, I've got it. Thirty-one four. Sorry. Thirty-one four. So again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Like. Is there any significance that he's saying, O virgin Israel, after they've been adulterous? <laughs> or is it just a Hebrew word for wife? No, I think it's hugely significant because, you know, the book of Hosea likens Israel to a prostitute who's unfaithful to her husband. And even that, the redemption, the cleansing, he's going to purify her so that he'll make her like a virgin. No, very, very good observation. The redemption he's bringing isn't just, I'll restore you, but I'll purify you. Right. Um, okay, second one. I like that statement. What? what? It's a good statement. You said it was statement a st- and a question. Okay, now the next, now number two question. All right. But pause. I gotta, sorry, I got to tell you one. Just, this cracks me up. We were driving home. Ab, Abner, he's here. Driving home from the mall. Dad, I have a question. Yes, Abner. I had this dream about a big tree and these birds. And after like 15 seconds, I'm telling you this dream. Abner, it's not a question. It's a statement. Thoughtful pause. Dad, I have a statement. And <laughs> anyway, sorry, go. Um, okay, uh, next question. So you had mentioned, you know, covenantal theology and needing to teach your kids about yeah. God, knowing God. Isn't that still true, though, even with believers? Like, don't we still teach each other and are taught? Yes, yes, and I would take the knowing God in an absolute sense. If you're a believer, you know God. You don't know him as you ought to. You ought to know him better, but you know God. Um, you call him Father, right? Um, so that relationship exists. You may have forgotten who God is somewhat. You might need to know. I still need to know who God is a whole lot better, but I know God. You know God. Um, so in that context, it's, it's my, you know, Eliana does not know God, not that I can tell. Um, Nothing particular about Eliana, just, okay. Um, No, but the whole debate, and maybe I'll post it up online. Um, I watched the debate between James White and Doug Wilson at the L.A. Airport Hotel back in 2005, and um, it centered on this. If you wonder why... um, there's different views on whether you baptize kids or not. It comes down to, under the covenantal formula, when you're dealing with like Presbyterians and Lutherans and stuff there, the kids are part of the covenant. And the logic for why the kids are part of the covenant is that under the law of, under the law of Moses, under um, that, the kids were all given the sign of the covenant. You gave your kids the sign of the covenant. And so in simplicity, the argument for that position is, it involves two premises, what circumcision was, baptism is, and there is straight continuity between the two covenants. This is a point which the covenants are alike. 
And I watched Doug, I watched James White sort of beat Wilson around the head with Hebrews 8. No, this is precisely one of the ways the covenants are not alike. Precisely one of the discontinuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is you can't be a member of the New Covenant and perish. And, and they'll freely admit there were members of the Old Covenant who went straight to hell. You know, much of that generation in the wilderness. Now, God gave them 30 years in the wanderings to repent, to change their mind. But if they stayed in their state, they were going to perish. And, and many and most of them did. And the new covenant is perfectly salvific. There are no members of the new covenant who will not persevere in faith to the end and finish faithful. So that was precisely the whole disagreement because um, the Presbyterians and, and Lutherans and such don't believe that their kids are automatically saved. They just believe they're part of the new covenant. So because they believe they're part of the new covenant, they baptize them and then call them to covenantal faithfulness. And they would recognize that their kids rebel and and leave, that they're not going to go to heaven. But they're baptizing them under the belief, our kids, by virtue of the new covenant, just just as in the old covenant, the children were given the sign, so we give our kids the sign. That's the logic. And so that's... That's the difference. It's like, no, I'm assuming my kids come into this world not knowing this God, or at least not knowing him beyond what they see in creation. They don't know him in any saving way, and they need to be taught that knowledge. They need to be called upon to trust in him and turn to him, uh, which if they were part of the new covenant, they would already have, at least in some sense, a knowledge and relationship with God. Does that make sense? Okay, third question. Third question. Um, How does this new covenant... uh especially in Jeremiah, mm. apply to the Gentiles when, it, when Jeremiah is so specific, you know, God is making this covenant with you mm. in the immediate context, Israel. Yes. And let me strengthen what you just said even further. If you look in Jeremiah 31, um, and this is why in the notes, the first point under, in the face of, you know, deportation, he promises restoration that the, it starts even back in, actually, not, not starting 31, starting 28, that verse that everyone quotes. I know the plans I have for you. No, 29, sorry, 29. 29.11, right? And everyone quotes, I know the plans I have. This is about, the, this is basically saying to Israel, the Babylonian captivity is not the end. Even though I'm going to spank you good and hard, I'm going to discipline you. I will restore you. I will not utterly forsake you. And so it's very situationally specific. I mean, if you want to say, God's heart towards Israel is his heart to his children, I I guess. But I I think frequently people have no idea what they're quoting. It just sounds nice and looks good sewed on a pillow. And this is huge news. The the failure, your failure to keep the law is not the end. Um, So then in 30, so that's the context which the new covenant is promised. And then in Jeremiah 31, I mean, look at this. Could you have any more striking language? Because again, what we're dealing with is there are those Christians, Christians, people we get along with and, and are brothers and sisters who believe that God's done with Israel nationally, that Israel's killing of their Messiah, their, their faithlessness there was so much, so severe, that God said, okay, enough, you're done. And Israel is welcome to trust in Jesus and become part of the church, but as regards as a nation, as a geopolitical, ethnic nation, there's no particular promises or future for Israel. He has cast them off. And I look at the new covenant. I mean, I remember in, in um, Old Testament survey and seminary, you know, wondering where I'd land on some of these issues. And we were working through Jeremiah 31, and it just hit me. There's just no way around it. I don't know how God can be more explicit that he won't do that. So immediately after the promise of the new covenant, I'll just look at, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 34 of 31. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. I could get more emphatic and clear than that. Keep going. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Maybe he means spiritual Israel and the people of God. Keep reading. It won't work. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt. For the Lord, for the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, the measuring line shall go out further straight to the hill of Gareb and shall turn to Goa. And the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Now, he's talking about the physical geography and land. There's no way around that. And so when he promises, look, sooner will the heaven and the sun and the stars cease to be than Israel will cease being a nation before me. I will rebuild you. Take him seriously. So I think part of the new covenant promise is the future restoration, the future um, exaltation of Israel. And here's how I think I fit that together. Go to Romans 11. Because remember that since the new covenant is really, according to, let's not go to Romans first, let's go to Galatians. I need to make this point in Galatians. I referenced it, but didn't have time in the message. Go to Galatians 3. I first need to show you, prove to you, the new covenant is in fact the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. So Romans, I mean, Galatians 3, then we'll go to Romans 9, 10 and 11. Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So what he's saying is this new message, this gospel, cannot be the alteration of the Mosaic covenant. Once a covenant's made, you you don't mess with it. You don't go in after the fact and say, actually, here's what we'll do. Um, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, literally seeds or seed, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. He's quoting Genesis 12. Who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And he goes on. So the point is this. God promised Abraham, I'm going to send, I'm going to give you a seed. And, that, and, and through you and through that seed, you will, be a, you will be blessed and all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he's saying, look, you can't view the Mosaic law as some add-on to the covenant with Abraham. You don't alter covenants once they're made. No, the Mosaic law is a separate covenant than God's covenant to Abraham. And the covenant with Abraham came 430 years earlier. 
This is the fulfillment of that covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, which is also why, because it's going to all the nations, it's not limited to Israel exclusively. Now, go to Romans 11. So, uh, that's my attempt to argue that the new covenant is really the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. Romans 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He's talking about Israel's rejecting of their Messiah. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You see, the promises extended to Israel are now being received by uncircumcised Gentiles. It's meant to provoke Israel to jealousy. The, the analogy I use is, imagine a rich business and landowner is, is grooming his only son to be the heir and to inherit the fortune and to run the business. And that son is a wastrel and a profligate and a drunkard. And, and after discipline and discipline, he refuses to mend his ways. So finally, the father casts him out. And the, the son who used to receive all these blessings, is now living on the street. And this father goes out into an orphanage, and he finds some street child, and he brings him in, and he cleans him up, and he gives him a robe and a cloak, and he adopts him into his family, and he gives him an inheritance. And then he actually puts this adopted child in his homegrown son's room. And he gets to play with his you know, Xbox, and he gets to use his computer and sleep in his bed. And, and Meanwhile, the homegrown son is walking the streets, and every now and then he looks and he sees in his old home, in his father's house, this, this street urchin living in his room, playing with his toys, eating his food. It's meant to provoke him to jealousy. So God has all these promises to Israel, and Israel, for a time, we're going to hear, has been cut off like branches from an olive tree. And we've been grafted in. And specifically, the promises that we're partaking in, according to Hebrews 8, are this new covenant promises. Now, part of the new covenant is the reconstitution and the exaltation of Israel. But by the time God comes around to fulfilling that promise to Israel, when he, according to Zechariah 12.10, pours out his spirit on the nation, they look on him and they've pierced, they grieve, they repent, they turn. The Lord comes and he fights for them and he sets up a kingdom. Our fathers could have moved us in a slightly different room in the house which is to say we're going to have a role and a function in the kingdom. According to Revelations 3, we will reign with him in the kingdom. But we, our function in, in the kingdom will be different than Israel's function in the kingdom. We all share in one Messiah, in one forgiveness, in one promised um, covenant of grace through faith. And yet some of the playing out of these things are going to be a little different for, for some of us. That's the best. Does that answer your question or is that just can further obfuscate it? It's good enough for this morning. It's good enough for this morning. Okay. All right. Uh, but no, look at, look, at, look at 11. Let me go a little further in 11. Okay. Um, so now I'm speaking, verse 13, to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? The life from the dead. So he's saying, like, as great as the gospel, new covenant blessings we have now are, if Israel does repent and believe, how much greater will it be? Well, I think the, the lot, the real filling in the blanks, because that's when the kingdom will come. 
And this is great, man. This is great that we have God's spirit and we have the adoption as sons and we get to call God Abba Father and we have confidence that he will cause us to walk and not to fall away and we have confidence in the forgiveness of sins. But there's even more stuff coming when Israel does repent and believe. And, and Paul's emphatic that it's going to be even better when that happens. If their rejection, verse 15, means the reconciliation of the world, what their acceptance mean with the life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in. This, that's my analogy of the, you know, the adoption and the street urchin. Um, were grafted in, among others, and now share a nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Jewish promises save us. Promises to Abraham are where the gospel is found. Then you will say, branches are broken off that I may be grafted in, which might be like the, the, the street urchin saying, I'm so important that the father kicked his son out of the house to bring me in. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened. We might say, oh, we're, we're so important that God kicked out Israel to bring us in. Branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast to your faith. So not become proud, but fear. The opposite conclusion if our father is strict enough that he'll kick his own son out of the house for a time, what will he do to us if we're faithless? That's the proper conclusion to draw from looking at God's treatment of Israel. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, there's, and we struggle with this. There's one of those condition statements. But I'm telling you, the new covenant carries within it God's promise that he will fulfill the conditions of that covenant. So we must, there's one of those verses, we must continue in faith. And he'll make us do it. He'll make us do it. So, anyway, that's... Uh, Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sights, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So God has chosen to set aside Israel for a time, to let the gospel go to the Gentiles, to the nations, but he will again bring in the fullness of Israel. And Paul says that will be greater still than what we have even now. So there are certain promises of the the new covenant that will not be fulfilled until Israel nationally converts. And then those... So I was talking to Daniel this morning. In one sense, all of the new covenant has not been fulfilled. And in part, that's the way the New Testament speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantor of our inheritance. We haven't received the fullness of our inheritance yet. Right? So we receive benefits of the new covenant, but we don't have the fullness of the new covenant. Because I believe within the new covenant is the promise of the kingdom. Um, so that's, that's the best attempt I have at answering your question. This is heavy, deep stuff. I get it. Other questions? Yes, Marina needs a microphone. There's a microphone right there. Oh, there's a microphone right there. Ooh, tea spill. I know this is a little trivial, but I have some blanks that I would Ooh. like to <laughs> Okay, sure. Okay. Which ones? So point one A, God's... Initial. Initial. Okay. Point two, institution and... Um, weakness okay. of the old covenant. I might have said failure as well, but... Okay. And then I guess number... 
3A1. In the face of captivity, God promises restoration. I think that's all. Thanks. Okay. And the reason I made the point of the initial is, one of the things that's interesting, right, in the initial first instance observance of the Passover, you eat it, what, with your clothes on in readiness. Jesus is eating the Passover meal reclining at a table. And it's not because he's not keeping the Passover. Its memorial institution is a little different than its first instance institution. In the first instance, you, you're ready, your belt's tightened, your clothes are on, you're ready to go, because at any moment you're going to hear the news, get out. God's going to redeem you. In the future observations of the Passover, the lamb still has to be slain, the blood's... But what isn't in place is that readiness and that haste, as is evidenced by Jesus reclining at a table. Um, so that, that's what I was trying to distinguish. Is okay, Exodus 12 is the first instance. And then thereafter, like you can read... We didn't, again, I didn't want to add another chapter to look at, but Deut- Deuteronomy 16 gives you the memorial practice of the Passover as well. Um, okay. Other Oh. Steve. I've got a statement. Oh, he's got a statement. Um, I liked your analogy of the endoskeleton and exoskeleton. And, Excellent. And if that is God within us, that we know who God is and fear him, what does that do to our perception of evangelism? In what way? If, if we know God personally within ourselves, uh-huh. how can someone else convince us? That is a good question. I think I get what you're saying now. Turn to Second uh, Corinthians 4. And then we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5. One of the great confidences I have in... Sometimes people argue that those who believe in the sovereignty of God will necessarily not believe in evangelism. You'll hear people say, if God's sovereign, then why evangelize? I find it the exact opposite. If I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I, I, would, I would never be able to go to sleep. I'd be lying there in bed thinking... So just last, just recently, like last week, I was sharing the gospel with somebody who I hope, believe, is, might come to faith. Um, and if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I would never get to sleep that night. I'd think, man, what if I'd said it this way instead of that way? What if I'd made this answer instead of that answer? What if I'd given this illustration, not that illustration? If I ultimately thought it depended finally on me, I'd never get any rest, but, you know, as it is, I sleep like a Calvinist. Um, Okay. Um, So 2 Corinthians 4, right? Verse 1, therefore, having this ministry, we do not lose heart. Where's the new cup? Okay. The ministry, by the way, look at verse, this ties in verse 5 and 6 of 3. The ministry is talking about to get the flow of thought. Not that our sufficiency is in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So that's what he's talking about in verse chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So that's how Paul evangelizes. Open statement of the truth, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, so even if people hear the good news and don't believe, it's not because Paul didn't make a compelling case. It's because it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when you and I evangelize, when we share our faith, and someone says, yeah, not interested. They, they don't see glory and beauty where we see glory and beauty. And it's because the God of this world has blinded them. Well, what's the cure for that blinding? And the cure isn't, I make a really compelling case. The cure is, verse 6, for God who said... Let light shine out of darkness. Pause. What event is he referencing? Genesis 1. And what's significant is in Genesis 1, God was all by himself. He wasn't responding to any initiative by anyone. No one said, hey, God, it would be a really good idea if he made light. In his sovereign good pleasure, he said, let there be light. Paul is comparing... The, the, the new birth, I think this is just one of many metaphors for, for that, whether it's the metaphor of taking a heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh, eyes to see, ears to hear, being born again, um, having your heart circumcised, or here having the veil removed. I think they all refer to the same miracle. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. I can't do that. I can't make that happen. So that, where that gets me then is I have to trust in God to work. That doesn't then mean I share the gospel in a callous way because Paul says, it, look at chapter 5. Um, pick it up in verse 14. Oh, pick it up in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now there's your point. How do you persuade people? Okay. It pleases God that his message of salvation and his offer of forgiveness is not given in a dry, here's your options. Um, you can trust in Christ and live, or you can not and go to hell and make up your mind and have a good day. It pleases God that something more than that is done in evangelism. So Paul says we persuade others, we plead with others. Um, now jump down to verse 16. For from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the same ministry he was talking about earlier, the ministry of the new covenant. All the way back to chapter 3, verse 6. He made us ministers of a new covenant. So God has given, he has reconciled us and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So there's a ministry of reconciliation, a message of reconciliation. What's that? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, so that 
to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there is a proper appeal and imploring that's taking place, but it's because it pleases God that we might show his heart and his longing. Now, let me show you another way that that looks. 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy two twenty four. The Lord's servant or the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. So you look at that equation, and what part of that am I responsible for? I'm responsible not to be a jerk, not to be quarrelsome. I'm to be kind. I need to have studied enough that I have something to teach or say. I'm not just giving my opinion. I need to be patient when their response to me is evil, not be surprised. And I need to correct my opponents with gentleness. God does not hold me responsible for whether or not people listen. He says, he determines that. So God wants me to go out, and whether it's correcting Christians in sin or correcting unbelievers, I'm to do these things. I'm to be kind, not quarrelsome, patient, correcting and teaching gently, hoping and trusting that God will grant repentance. And that gives me tremendous boldness. I mean, my wife was just sharing this with somebody the other day. I don't like conflict. I know some people may think I, like, I don't like conflict. I get the same butterflies in my stomach and queasy, upset stomach feeling when I need to go talk to somebody and I don't want to go talk to them. Because, eh. And this verse hammers me. Because, you know, just imagine the last time you needed to go have a difficult conversation with someone. Imagine an angel were to appear to you and say, Hey, Jeremy, I know you're scared, but if you go talk to Bob and you go gently correct Bob, Bob is going to listen to you. Bob is going to repent. Bob is going to be reconciled with Christ. Would you hesitate for a moment to go talk to Bob? No. The only reason I don't want to go talk to somebody is because I don't think they're going to listen. And then the question is, who am I to predict whether or not the sovereign God or not is going to grant repentance? I'm not in, I don't need to be in the business. If, is, so, when I, so when you and I say, I'm not going to go talk to that person because they'll never listen to me, what you're really saying is, I know what God's going to do. God will not grant them repentance. God will not be gracious to them. God will not pour his spirit on them. They're utterly lost and reprobate. And so that hammers me, and I'm like, okay. I just need to be obedient and faithful. I don't need to worry about the results. God worries about the results. And so when I share the gospel in evangelism, I try to be as faithful as I can. God wants me to genuinely appeal to them. God wants me to show his heart to them. I need to be able to be wronged. I need to be able to give an answer. I need to be able to uh, teach and have something to say. And then I need to leave it in God's hands. And, and it might be God's plan that this person's going to hear the gospel 12 times before they come to faith. It might be God's plan that they never come to faith. I just need to preach the gospel and trust that God will do what he does. So there is a place for persuasion, and there's a place for giving answers and reasons, no doubt. Um, but those are not finally, ultimately, decisive. 
If they were, I'd never be able to get to sleep at night. I'd think, oh man, if I'd only spent two more minutes talking to them, maybe they wouldn't be headed for hell. If I'd only thought of this to say instead of that to say, they wouldn't perish. I'd, I'd never be able to get stop chasing my tail like that. So, um, I don't know if that how how satisfactory that answer is, but I, I take great confidence in in trusting that God ultimately is decisive in how someone's going to respond. The new birth is attributed in the New Testament to two agencies. In John 3, you're born again of... John 3, you must be born of... The Spirit. Excellent. James 1, of his own will he brought us forth, birthed us as a kind of first fruits by... Anyone? The Word of God. 1 Peter 1, you were brought forth by the Word of Truth. So the new birth is both ascribed as a work of the Spirit and a work of the Word of God. Which one of those do I have any influence or control over? The Word of God. I can scatter the seed. And so according to Paul, I'll, I'll end it here. Go to, go, to Rome, go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will make an analogy of his evangelistic ministry as sowing seed. I wonder where he got that from. 1 Corinthians 3. And he's dealing, of course, with the factions in the church. Paul was the church planter, but now Apollos is the teacher of the body. And there's people who liked Paul better. There's people who like Apollos better. And they're trying to jostle with their personality cults and stuff. Verse 5. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? So how, how do you regard Paul and Apollos? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So in this metaphor, what does Paul planted mean? It means he showed up to Corinth, preached the gospel, and planted a church. What does it mean that Apollos watered? It means that Apollos teaches from God's word, the, the, the Corinthian church. The results of both Paul's evangelism and the results of Apollos' teaching are accredited to whom? God. God gave the growth. So whatever benefit happens to anyone this morning, it's God, who, it's not me, it's God who gives the growth. I can get in the way, certainly. The, the, this powerful, yeah, the powerful seed is the word of God. And so I, Paul can attribute some agency through whom you believed, through the agency of Paul's preaching they believed, but ultimately God gave the increase. So then, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And then he switches to a, a building metaphor. Talking about as a skilled labor, but but that's that's the point. That the, the ultimate growth when when our missionaries out in the field are preaching the gospel and people come to faith, they're they're planting and watering, and God's giving the increase. So that's the frame of mind that I try to do evangelism in. That's the frame of mind I try to preach and teach in. Is it's not as though, man, if I can just get the right sermon illustration, it's going to change that person's marriage. If I can just make the right exegetical point, it's going to. You know, it's going to turn that person's struggle with sin around. Um, certainly error 
and, and bad teaching can harm, but the best thing I can do is get out of the way and, and hope and trust the Spirit of God gives the increase. Um, Charles Spurgeon, if you read his um, biography, he came to faith. I mean, he heard the gospel many, 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 many times. And one day he was um, going to church to hear some famous preacher, and there's a snowstorm, and they couldn't get there, so they ended up going to a chapel with a preacher that the pastor couldn't show up because of the snow. And so according to him, some ignorant deacon, no offense to the deacons here, an ignorant deacon who could hardly read, read one verse about 16 times over and over and over and then sat down. It was, look unto me, you would be saved. And God chose that message and that humble, that unsophisticated preaching. That's, that's when he gave the growth. One of the greatest, most eloquent speakers, in the prince of preachers, as he's commonly referred to, was saved under a faithful man just getting up and reading, look unto me and be saved, about 16 times, and he sat down. I mean, if I did that, you guys wouldn't be terribly impressed on a Sunday morning. Yet that's how God chose to the foolishness of the message preached to save Charles Spurgeon. Um, God, God can use, I mean, like I said, God's spoken through a donkey before. He may do it again. He, can, he, he gives the increase to his word. So what matters to me is that I be faithful and that how, I'm looking at the Bible, how does God want me to present the gospel? How does God want me to do evangelism? How does God want me to do teaching? And just focus on trying to be faithful to what he said and let him worry about the results. So, Steve, that is a long-winded answer, um, but that's my answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make a historical comment. Okay, historical. We have a new something, category. Yeah. Historical comment. New, yes, something ma'am. when you went to the Old Testament and you spoke about the memorial to commemorate, and I was thinking of Swingley and Luther, the oh. argument they had. Okay. Yeah, that's and where I, we're going next week, but I'll, I'll, oh. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, we'll jump there real fast. We've got five minutes, sure enough. Let's do it. Go to Luke 22. What Elsa is referencing is that the, the, the first wave of the reformers, and John Calvin wasn't first wave, he was second wave. He still usually gets grouped in with the magisterial reformers, but in the first instance, it was Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and um, Busser. Those are the three big names in the church, in the Reformation. And there was some hope that Luther and Zwingli um, would join forces and unite their 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 factions together. And so there's a meeting where they got together to try to figure out a confession of faith they could agree upon. And Luther and Zwingli um, famously could not agree upon what they understood the Lord's Supper to be, communion. Um, of course, Roman Catholicism teaches transubstantiation. Um, the, 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 the bread and the, the wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus. Luther held to consubstantiation which is using platonic categories to say that even though the physical vessel remains unchanged, its essence does. It's a really weird construction. It really depends upon platonic dualism categories where you can have what the thing is in its outward manifestation and yet what it is in its true identity. And so Luther would say that like in with and under, while it remains physically observably unchanged, its essence and essential nature has changed. Ulrich Swingley just believes it was a memorial. It's what we believe. And, and Luther famously almost signed off and then said, nope, 
if he doesn't believe Jesus meant when he said, when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, then we can't agree. And, you know, they're stormed out. And that's history. And so famously, it comes down to what Jesus means when he says in verse 19 of Luke 22, this is my body, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we'll deal with this next week, but I just want to ask you a simple question. Do you think anybody in that room with Jesus, remember Jesus hasn't been crucified, he hasn't been pierced, his blood hasn't been shed, would anybody in that room with Jesus think that the piece of bread they have in their hand is Jesus? Or would not everybody understand this is a symbol? Everybody, I can't imagine anybody in the first instance when this was said being confused. Wait a second, is that Jesus or is this Jesus? He's talking right over there. This is Jesus. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign, it's a symbol. Now, where they, where people really want to build up the, the theology of consubstantiations in John 6. Go to, go to John 6. Interestingly, John's gospel does not have an account of the Lord's table. The words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, doesn't have it. What John does have is John 6. And so people go to John 6, and even though there's nothing in John 6 that directly links to the Lord's Supper and communion, and even though nowhere in John's gospel is it instituted, a discourse Jesus has years before the cross in Galilee is used to, to, to strengthen this up. Because Jesus says, after all... Um, where is it? Um, 40, 40, sure, 48, you said? I'm, okay, look at 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father sent me draws him. Um, where does he say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Okay, there it is, 52. And the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. Now, that is really where most of the transubstantiation and consubstantiation doctrine comes from. And say, look, isn't Jesus emphatic? You must eat his flesh. You must drink his blood. So surely that's what we're doing at communion, even though John 6 has no overt connections to communion. And if you don't import communion, I would suggest to you, John gives us the interpretive key in his text. Go back to verse 35. So unless you import from the other Gospels, the Lord's Supper, if you just take John on his own terms, before Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, I think he gives us the interpretive key. That's verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, this is the very beginning of those statements. He hasn't said anything previously about that. This is when he begins the whole discourse of I'm the bread of life. Look what he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I think that is the interpretive key of the parable. The, the metaphor. In other words, what he's, what's he equating coming to Jesus as? Eating. Because coming to Jesus stops you from being hungry. 
And believing in Jesus stops you from being thirsty. So do you see how right at the very beginning, before he goes on any further, he, we know what we're dealing with. If you want to eat from Jesus, you're coming to him. If you want to drink, you're believing in him. And then given that introduction where he makes it, I think, clear what the categories are, where coming to Jesus is equated with eating and believing in him is equated with drinking, then he goes on, having established the metaphor, and speaking, no, it's essential. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to come to me, you need to believe in me. Doesn't that make sense and fit, I think, perfectly? Only if you import the Lord's table from the other three Gospels, because it's not in John. John has him speak of the Spirit in the upper room, um, but he, doesn't, he does not include the account of, of the bread and the cup, uh, I think because he's aware of the other three Gospels, knows it's been covered fully, and he wants to supplement with some stuff as well. Um, but that's really where, where you're going to get your primary proof text or con and transubstantiation. So, so we here, we'll deal with this next week when we actually work through Luke, believe that this meal is serious. I mean, signs are serious business. God, God gets upset when people profane signs. I don't want to make it sound like what we do in communion is of little consequence. Paul tells the Corinthians, there are people who are sick and dead because they haven't taken it appropriately seriously enough. But we do believe it is just a sign. It is not the thing itself. Um, Dean. Right, the early church was accused of cannibalism, and part of Justin Martyr's early apology has to explain we're not actually eating flesh. That, no, that's what the Roman magistrates heard. These people get together and in their love feast, they eat flesh and drink blood. And so the, one of the earliest defenses of the Christian faith is, no, no, we're not. We're not, we're not actually doing that. Um, time is up. We'll actually attempt to walk through Luke 22 and the passage on communion next week. Thank you much.